Welcome. Uh, new sermon series today that we do really annually on our values here at Bethany Community Church. It's what we call Gather, Grow, Go. So it's our kind of alignment on some of our values. We have our core priorities uh, this year around race and justice, around thriving locations, on people experiencing God in new and powerful ways. But there are values that undergird that. So if this is our community, the values are gathering together in worship, going in mission, and growing in relationship. And so everything that we've set up over the next three weeks is that we would be living our values and inviting you. I will say, before I read scripture, that uh, I believe this is one of the most important seasons the church in our era has ever experienced. After so much disconnection during COVID, after just the kind of the social unrest and people's faith faltering, they say, Barna's research does, about one in three people that identified as a Christian before 2020 is no longer identifying as Christian or connected with God's church. So this is the season where we are declaring God's goodness and we are declaring together that God has called his people to matter through the local church, to be a bright light in the city, to be a bright light to each other here. So our scripture today comes from Psalm 73, kind of an unlikely place to do a sermon on the value of gathering, kind of the why that church matters. Uh, But let me read to you portions of Psalm 63. You can read behind me, or if you brought your Bible, you can open it or look online, wherever you read scripture. Uh, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Skipping ahead to verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Verse 21. When my heart had grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, God. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish and you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of God for us, God's people. Will you pray with me now? Lord, thank you so much for these old words and how they become new again as we speak them out loud as a community. God, we recognize that much as the psalm talks about pain and unrest and lament, but there is new understanding available in the sanctuary of your people, God. That there's something that happens when we gather that matters, where in the proclamation and the singing and the dedication of children and the joy of the little ones and the experience of the old ones and the anxieties and all of it, God, is sacred to you. And that there's something that happens here in this space, God, that's greater than the sum of its parts, which is the indwelling of your spirit in your church. God, would you open us up to learn more about why your gathering matters. We need it today. We need more hope today than ever before, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, 
Uh, I'm just back from a two-week vacation with uh, my family through Western Montana and Spokane. We had a really lovely time. Really missed you. Uh, it's really good to be back. This does feel like, as Anna and Raul were on stage, it just feels like an exciting season, a launching season. And um, it's exciting for me as a leader here to just get to kind of state again, this is why we exist. This is why what we do as God's people matters. And uh, for people that are online, for people that are here in the room, the why, even the format of how we gathered has been so obviously disrupted over a couple of years. And I saw somebody even a month ago and they said, we are, we're kind of stuck online in this season because of some things we're going through, but we're gathered even if we're not in the room. And that is a miracle of technology. So for those of you that are at home, you're here with us, and we hope that God is encountering you in whatever space uh, that you are hearing this message today. For those of us that are in the room, there's something sacred that happens when we gather as God's people. It's the why church matters. It's the title of our message today. Let me tell you a story to get started. The why has to be answered for our purpose to be secure. Uh, this summer, one of our travels, I took my son to a soccer camp in San Jose and there learned again the story of the Winchester Mystery House. How many of you visited the Winchester Mystery House? A portion of us. And this is, we have some San Jose loyalists here, but the Winchester House is this American curiosity, a real place in San Jose, California. We have a picture here. It was uh, built, started in 1886. Construction never finished, but lasted over almost 40 years. And in almost 40 years, uh, the heiress to the house, Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of uh, the Winchester mag, uh, you know, gun um, fortune, she started off on this construction project. 40 years, 160 rooms constructed. They added 950 doors. They added 10,000 windows. They added 40 stairways. They added six kitchens. And it goes on from there. And really, other than ceaseless building, there was no purpose because Sarah lived alone. Sarah was a widow, and her only child died at five weeks old. There's many rumors or thoughts about why it mattered to Sarah to continue to build, but she continued to build because she was fearful that in the silence of building, the emptiness of the house would overtake her. Why does the church matter? Why does what we're building matter? Is there a purpose to the gathering of God's people? And there are questions in your bulletin. Some of these questions are meant to stimulate you both in the space today and in the week ahead. Have you ever been disappointed by the church? Have you ever been told like something would really matter and then a leader let you down or other people on the journey didn't show up? I mean, my hunch is, yeah, because to be alive at all is to experience some heartache. And even when we show up to say, we'll be God's people together, we'll belong together. Unfortunately, many of us have experienced hurt in the place that we're supposed to be hope. And in that regard, when we talk about the why of church, we're really swimming upstream to a culture that's been indoctrinated that church at times hasn't mattered. And I, you know, it's like there's not a month that goes by that another high-profile pastor just 
bites the dust of immorality or doesn't live the values to which he or she ascribes to. Most of the time, he, let's be honest. It's never mattered more that we'd be people that know our values, that we would know why we exist, and that we would be defined by the way in which we live. And so today, I just hope to unpack here from Psalm 73, three pretty simple principles from Psalm 73 about the why we exist as a church, why church matters. We're going to talk about we gather for perspective, we gather for transformation, and we gather for hope. I want to say in the outset, we do all those imperfectly, let's be honest. For me, specifically as a leader, for, for us specifically as a community, but still we declare that when we gather, it is, as I said, greater than the sum of its parts. Because as Jesus said, where two or more gathered, I'm there. And my presence can help you overcome any difficulty you face. So we gather for a purpose. It matters. Let's look here at the beginning. We gather for perspective. We gather for new perspective. We gather in order to get... Uh, a perspective of what God's doing in the world. It's often blinding from the pain that we experience. Look at verses 1 through 6 from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. going to go into that in just a minute. Not of David or any other writer. This is a psalm of the writer Asaph. Surely God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Verse 2 is very painful, very poignant. You're like, wow. The writer is saying, I had almost been destroyed. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. We gather for perspective. I don't know if you've had this perspective on a Sunday morning when you're not at church. You know, really? There's Sundays you're not at church? I know. It's, it's you know, we were on vacation last Sunday. We walk into a Starbucks. I'm like, hmm, this is how the other half lives. And it's like Psalm 73. They look well-rested. They look joyful. The Starbucks we visited was actually closed. It was one of those like, oh, because of, you know, COVID or whatever, it's drive through only. But all these people are like sitting out front just drinking coffee joyfully. And I was like, gosh, darn it. I envy. I envy the arrogance. No. Uh, we gather as a church for perspective and to remember when we often forget that we are more than just individuals. We are and always have been a community. We are, as the people of God, we are God's beloved people, not just individuals. And every time we read scripture, we tend to read it individually, even the language here, first person pronoun I, but this was one of the Psalms used for worship in ancient Israel by the writer Asaph, who was a worship director. If you ever wonder, like, who wrote the Psalms? That's a great question someday that you could, you know, kind of Google search. I've got some information for you. There's more than six writers of the Psalms. David, of course, wrote a bunch of them, about half. But the next second most Psalms attributed is to the writer Asaph. About 12 Psalms written by Asaph. This is one of Asaph's Psalms. A Asaph was a real person in ancient Israel appointed by David to be a worship leader to be a worship director. Asaph wrote from this perspective of being called to lead others into the place of encountering God. But what you see in verse two is the very humanity of like, even in the midst of declaring God's goodness, 
I, Asaph, am struggling for perspective. Why? Because I'm, I'm, my feet are almost slipping. I'm discouraged. I'm anxious. I'm afraid. And I'm seeing other people who are flourishing. And you see this worship leader in Psalm 73 who's deeply wounded. And I think in this regard, though, this is an unlikely space or scripture to land on to kind of proclaim the gathering of God's people, especially for us as New Testament Christians. It's so powerful here because lament is present. Brokenness is present. Scholars say there's, you know, 150 psalms. The scholar says this is the center point of the book of Psalms. This is the first psalm of the third book. It's the beginning of this lament. And in this regard, we get to remember that lament and pain, anxiety, brokenness is a gateway, if we shepherd it well, to, to healing and transformation and hope. Not because we healed ourselves, but because we have an encounter with a powerful God. Like we don't come to church when we're like, man, I am dialed in. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Like when people say that, I'm like, Bleh, you know, throw up in my mouth. You know what somebody said to me this morning when we were praying? I'm in a dry spell. I'm in a real dry spell. And I'm like, thank you. That was such a beautiful and honest thing to say to each other because we'll go through dry spells. This is why church matters because we gather hungry for the water that comes from the Spirit of God. We come for the healing that comes, not when we heal ourselves, but when we encounter God's risen strength through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what it's about. Uh, Consider what Hebrews 10 says. Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I think we've seen the day approaching, haven't we? So all the more the church should matter. We should be spurring each other on. Like you get that visual of a, of a jockey on a horse, just riding together to experience new hope, new healing, new perspective. Perspective is present when we show up together. It's why we need church now more than any other time in our history. There's a fascinating uh, study that's been, you know, done over and over again at the University of Virginia called the Social Support Study and Geographical Slant. And in this study that really started in the 90s and been done many different iterations, social scientists experimented at the University of Virginia. They did this, they, this quite a large hill on the, on the campus they took students who had gone by the hill many different times and they would have to stand at the bottom of the hill and do a survey of intake. They say, we're going to send you up the hill. How steep is the hill to which you're going to march? Like, so they would study it and then they would have this little tool and they would adjust it how steep. And then they would also, these social scientists, before anyone takes a step, they would survey them. How much sleep have you gotten? Are you eating well? All these things. And what they found, social scientists, that was that the people's degree of difficulty of what they perceived the slant of the mountain they were about to walk up was impacted by a lot of things that they were carrying. Like, and then literally, they'd put a backpack on them. They'd put, you know, 20% of their body weight in the pack, and they'd say, now how steep does the hill? Again, they haven't taken a step yet. In the, in the late 90s, they added a wrinkle to this social support and geographical slant 
to just say, before you take a step, as you measure the degree of difficulty of the journey you're about to take, you get to bring a special someone and stand next to you. It didn't even matter if the person was going to take the journey or not. As long as there's a healthy, attached person in deep relationship to a person, every participant thought the journey looked easier. The degree of slope looked less. And what I find fascinating in revisiting the study is what researchers realized is that they could ask the suspect in the study to conjure up a healthy relationship of somebody that they loved who wasn't even present and the, and the perception of slant also went down. What does it mean? It means that we matter to each other through relationship. That the difficulties we face, the loads we carry, even when we're beat down, even the dry spells that we walk through, when we're connected to other Christians, when we show up and see the little girl be dedicated to the Lord, and the worship leader offer a prayer, and an old friend we haven't seen, and our kids encountering Jesus in new ways, it strengthens us. We need that perspective now more than any other time in our history, in recent history as a church. We gather for perspective. The second thing we gather for, and Psalm 73 talks about it here, is we gather for transformation. We gather to not just stay where we've been, but in order to be changed, to be made into the likeness of Christ. Ephesians 2 gives this incredible promise that it's been, it's by grace that you've been saved, the not of work, it's, it's not anything to do with us, that we've been saved by Jesus Christ in order, Ephesians 2.10 says, to do great works for him. What does it mean? It means as God's people, we're constantly needing to be transformed and changed into Christ's image to be sent on a mission of telling other people of God's goodness. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about our value of going and being missional into youth sports coaching and, you know, other organizations we support and volunteering here on Team North. All of it matters. But why does the gathering matter for transformation? It, it matters because we experience change when we're not alone. We experience change when we see what God's doing in not just our own lives. One of the huge failures of the evangelical movement really in recent decades is we so wanted people, myself included, we so wanted people to have a radical encounter with God that we privatized faith to a me and Jesus movement. Which means that if you just take your Bible and your journal and a really good cup of coffee and go climb a hill and watch the sunrise, you could experience transformation alone. That's never what Jesus meant when he said, Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you all rest. Because something will happen in the collective that supersedes what could ever happen in the individual's life. That was Jesus' new community. A group of really divergent thinkers and really contrarian voices gathered around the center point of Christ. We will never have uniformity, especially in a community church like this. But unity of who Jesus is as we worship him is absolutely the gateway towards our transformation. Look at Psalm 73, verse 16 and 17. Asaph writes, 
when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. It's so honest. It's so beautiful. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Like when I was seeking to understand, it troubled me. But when I went to the sanctuary, when I was around God's people, then I understood. Like, do you see that change from 16 to 17? It's remarkable, isn't it? Seeking to understand became the finality of understood. It's finished work in the presence of God's people. Because there's something in the why we gather that we could never experience on our own. But when I entered the sanctuary, said Asaph, all that anxiety, all that fear, all that envy on the Sunday morning Starbucks drinkers, all of it, I'm like, I get it. That, that though my external situations haven't changed, I'm experiencing transformation and I'm doing it together and I'm capable of growth because I'm seeing God move in your lives in ways that I can never do it on my own. It's not, man, I was just on vacation. I watched the sunrise for seven days in a row over Deer Lake with my scripture, with great coffee. I can't stay there. You can't stay there. Like literally it wasn't my house. It was my buddy's and he's like, you can't stay here. But The trick isn't experiencing God on vacation. It's experiencing God as my daughter moves out next weekend. It's experiencing God when our our building burns down in a place that was supposed to be this this sanctuary for families to experience God. Now, now the trick isn't like that one-off we had on the mountain. It's in the everyday. And in this regard, why church matters is because when we show up, especially in the dry spells, Jesus says, ah, now it's not about you anymore. It's not about you. Because Eleanor was dedicated today. It's not about you. It's about dedicating her to the Lord. But you saw it. And you took a vow, whether you realize or not, to say, when that little girl's here, I'm going to say a little prayer for her. I'm going to care about her. I'm going to, if I can, the fam family, I'm just getting to know them. Like, how are things going? Like, this is what it means to be a church. Pastor John, who was the predecessor of Pastor Richard, had a favorite saying that gets repeated back to me at least monthly from old-time Bethany people. We're really blessed here at North. We have some people that have been at Bethany for the long haul through different leaders, through different social movements, and still they're here with their heartstrings tangled together. Because at the end, it doesn't matter who the pastor is. It matters who the people are, God's people, experiencing transformation together. And that is pretty, pretty important for us to continue, especially right now, to say, this is why we exist. This is our purpose. Many of you, when you were in uh, high school or college, probably read Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl, it's a story that many of us know just from history. A Jewish POW who was held for three years in both Auschwitz and Dachau, arguably two of the worst prison camps during World War II. And he survived. And in Frankl's witnessing, uh, the people, the survivors surviving to the extent to which they were in control, with 10 million people exterminated by the German regime, it it seems a bit callous to say that you could survive just with a mindset shift. That's not true at all. That the people, many of them had no option whether to survive or not. But something emerged for Frankel in witnessing the power of hope 
and purpose in those who were able to control their outcomes of survival. And, and in Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel kind of documents it him, himself. But he said he saw over and over and over again those who had a purpose outside of their own survival actually ended up surviving. Who were surviving in the camp for someone else that they were trying to care for or somebody that they had to get home for. Frankel said in watching people who had a purpose beyond their own life, there seemed to be a gateway towards their ability to survive to the amount they were able to control. Most were not. For those that life just got real small and insular and about their day-to-day survival, for many of them, they lost hope and some of them lost their lives. So we gather for transformation as God's people to say, it's more than just me. And we'll go through incredible mornings on the lake of sunrise and good coffees and unfortunately heartbreaking dry spells, which are outlined here in Psalm 73. But when we enter the sanctuary, understanding can move to being understood, that it's more than just me. And this becomes really our final point, that we gather for hope. We gather for hope that can only come with a real encounter with God and an encounter with God together. Look at verse 21 through 28. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. So beautiful. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? On earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. They will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful. But as for me, as for us, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And for the sake of teaching this psalm and this message today, I'll change that a bit. We have made the Lord our refuge. We will tell of all the Lord's deeds. We will suffer. We will struggle. We will, as we know, have really difficult times. And we are God's beloved. And we'll experience something together in the transformation of each other that is the hope that we're called to in the transformation of Christ. In, in, in experiencing God together is where our hope lies. And in contrast to the Winchester Mystery House, which is just kind of nonsense, we're called to be placing our lives on top of each other, building a sanctuary, a place for the broken, a place for the hurting, a place for the searching, that this would be a safe place for people saying, I need an encounter with God. And we would say, come in, friends. You're welcome here. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what laments you carry over the state of the church in general, this church in particular, from your personal life. Some of you are in mountaintop experiences as we start September, and many of the rest of you are not. You are invited here to belong here, to knit our heartstrings together, to build a family of faith, as imperfect as it often is, a place where we're experiencing God together. And I will tell you from my own experience, it is in the context of God's gathered people 
that can hold us together when our hearts are broken and our hopes are high. Both of them God uses to point towards the power of the church. A closing illustration, this parable of the three builders, this Christopher Wren, this famous church architect, uh, called in at the late 1600s, the Great Fire of London, swept through seven of eight Londoners lost their, either their job or their home. Only six lives were lost, but the city was wasted, was totally wrecked, like one little spark in their thatch roof, just Great Fire of London. And Christopher Wren was bought, brought in to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral, a place of hope. Wren's challenge and difficulty was calling people to rebuild the massive cathedral that in those days could take upwards of decades or sometimes even centuries. How do you call people to rebuild when their hope has been wasted? So as the legend goes, one day Wren went out walking to, to check the status of his church builders. Like, how is their heart? Not just their, like, muscles, but, like, do they believe in what they're building? And the result is this parable of the three builders. He came across the first builder who's working on this, you know, buttress of this huge church, just laying bricks, just stone after. It's very boring work, actually, very slow work. Hey, friend, up on the scaffolding, what are you doing there? The first respondent said, I'm just laying bricks. I'm just getting by. I'm just surviving. Rin walked on, asked the second builder, friend, what are you building? This guy had a second a little bit more perspective, but he couldn't see really the, the calling that he was entering into. He says, I'm just building a wall, build this biggest thing I've ever worked on, but it's just, a, it's just a thing. But the third builder was where Wren found his inspiration to write down this parable later. He said, friend, what are you building? The guy turned from his stonework and he said, I am building a cathedral a place to meet with the Almighty where lives would be changed. And a lot of what I do as a pastor, a lot of what we do as God's people just feels like stacking stones, just getting by Wednesday. It's just another Sunday. It's just next Tuesday. I want to remind you and call you in specific ways, church. Your lives are building something incredible to the glory of God. So may you continue to encourage one another. May you understand that though there is pain and loss around, that your pain is being stewarded to grow something beautiful for God. And that our lives, as we all show up to church together, the gathering matters more than ever before to be building a place of hope. And you are needed here. Your own perspective change, your own transformation, your own hope matters now more than ever before. And I am praying for you each and every day that this would be a season of incredible hope growing in your life through this church. Let's pray towards that end right now. Jesus, thank you so much for a Sunday to be remembering of the why of your gathering, to be remembering together that though God, many of us have, have had great discouragements through the local church that you still are calling that you show up, God, through the power of your spirit. You're, you're, you're greater than any of the sum of our parts, of our programming, our singing, our speaking. God, it's, it's the dwelling that you bring to our gathering that matters so much. And so, God, would you allow us as a church in the season ahead to be hungry for a real encounter with you, 
to be experiencing real hope through you, God, that people could bring their dry spells, to bring their discouragements, to bring their anxiety, and they would cast them upon you, that they would lean not on their own understanding, but lean on your understanding, God, that happens when your people gather together in worship. God, we, we ask for a new thing. We ask for new wine, new spirit poured out in your people. God, it's not about old structures and old systems and glory days. All of the old days are past. God, do something new in this time and place. Knit us together in a way that feels new and fresh, that we would, God, experience you on Sunday mornings in life-changing ways, and that there would be baptisms and new experiences and new yeses to following you and new children that want to be here and new senior citizens that feel like they belong again and new families and new individuals, God, that this would be truly a haven for the discouraged and downtrodden and those looking for your hope and your peace and your glory, this church, just, just laid out in worship of you, God. We love you so much. Help us, Lord, build a life of meaning as a church that we'd be a bright light in this city. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward. We're going to sing a couple songs, and if you want to just pray over something, we'd love to have you pray with prayer team members. They're they're trained, and they've been praying all week for this moment. Be praying over someone in your life, something that you've carried, some place where you're looking for hope, and you're ready to just bring that to another prayer team member to lift it up to God on your behalf. We do not have to walk alone. We are God's people. This is the why we exist. So let's stand as we worship God together.